Welcome to Aesthetic Staff Bootcamp. This educational podcast, brought to you by the Aesthetic Society and sponsored by Elastin, is geared specifically towards aesthetic plastic surgery staff. I'm Dr. Regina Newhan, a now retired plastic surgeon with a long practice history, and I'm happy to be your guide for this informative experience, which is designed to help get you up to speed in learning about a variety of popular aesthetic procedures and is intended to be a supplement to your surgeon's instructions and unique protocols. This podcast will benefit new staff, both clinical and non-clinical, as they navigate their plastic surgery office duties and care of patients, but it may also serve as a refresher for established team members. For each episode, we'll highlight at least five basic categories of information regarding the specific topic or procedure being discussed. These categories are, number one, overview and goals of the procedure, including definitions, medical terminology, and pertinent anatomy. Number two, basic procedural technique, how it's done. Number three, consultation pearls, including what's important and who's a candidate. Number four, perioperative care, which is unique to each office, but there are some common basics. And number five, patient experience and concerns, like what to expect afterwards, patient questions or problems, and potential complications. There will be a lot of information provided in a user-friendly manner However, you may find it's a lot to digest at one sitting. Please feel free to revisit sections of each episode as often as necessary to meet your own personal needs. So let's get started. This episode is designed to bring you up to speed about an aesthetic procedure that is consistently one of the top two to three in popularity year to year, liposuction, also known as SAL or suction lipectomy. Lipe, L-I-P, means fat, similar to lipid, and ectomy means the removal of something. Now, to be clear, this episode will be referring to the internal procedure of liposuction and not to the external treatments that have been promoted as fat-reducing. But what is liposuction? Basically, it's a surgical procedure which reduces body fat in targeted areas through the use of suction. Now, it's important to note that contrary to the impression that much of the public has, liposuction is not defined as a weight loss procedure. And though it can be used to debulk or thin out certain body areas, it is primarily designed to improve contour in a localized fashion. It can be used to sculpt the body. In fact, for the most part, only the fat between the skin and the underlying muscle layer is treatable. You could not, for example, place a cannula inside the abdominal cavity and try to suction out the fat around the organs. That would be highly dangerous. As mentioned, liposuction is accomplished by the use of a cannula, which is a long, thin metal tube that has one or more small openings at the blunt tip. As the cannula is moved back and forth within the fat layer, it suctions out fat it comes in contact with. The suction is most commonly produced by an electric machine connected to the cannula by flexible plastic tubing. Alternatively, manual suction can be created by syringe technique, which involves connecting a cannula directly to a syringe, and then while the tip is still inside the body, effectively creating an airlock, pulling back on the syringe to produce a temporary vacuum. In terms of liposuction cannulas, there are many different shapes and sizes to accommodate a variety of situations, and they are labeled in millimeters of diameter, such as 3, 4, or 5, for example. 
the surgeon will choose a specific diameter and length cannula for specific areas of the body and layer depth, and often multiple sizes of cannulas are used within one procedure setting. The tips of the cannulas are quite varied as well. Some will have a single hole opening which could be on the side of the tip and directional if, say, the surgeon only wanted to suction fat in the direction of deeper tissue rather than fat right under the skin. This could help avoid any future visible divots or contour problems that may occur from suctioning too superficially. Other cannulas may have multiple openings in a variety of different configurations for different purposes. For standard liposuction, the process begins with markings being made on the body, and these designate the exact spots to be suctioned. It's helpful to do this when the patient is upright because things may shift when they lie down on the operating table. After either general or local anesthesia has been administered and the treatment area has been surgically prepped, one or more small incisions are made in the skin. If possible, these are placed in strategic positions so that ideally they will be relatively hidden in the future. Through each incision, a cannula can be introduced under the skin and into the fatty layers. Why multiple incisions? Well, suctioning the same region from different directions through more than one incision can actually help create a smoother result, with less risk of creating unsightly tracks under the skin. Depending upon the goal of the outcome, the targeted fat may either be deep to or above what's called the superficial fascia. The superficial fascia is a sheet of supporting connective tissue which lies parallel to and between the skin and the muscle. And fat is typically located both above and below this fascia. Staying deeper with suctioning helps reduce risk of visible contour irregularities after healing. But more superficial suctioning can strategically be done in certain areas to achieve a specific outcome, such as shaping the neck, or creating an etched contour of the abdominal wall to follow muscle definition, for example, which some patients may desire. For these situations, use of smaller or even flatter cannulas and very careful technique are beneficial. For the most common version of liposuction, a tumescent technique is used in which a volume of fluid, usually saline, is infiltrated, meaning injected, into the fat to be suctioned. This facilitates the procedure in a few ways. First, it physically plumps up the tissue, making it stiffer and easier to consistently pass a cannula through, as opposed to tissue that is loose and moves around a lot. Secondly, local anesthetic like lidocaine can be added to the tumescent fluid to numb the area and allow the procedure to be done while the patient is awake. Alternatively, it can give the general anesthetic patient more comfort after waking up. Caution has to be taken, however, to monitor the overall amount to avoid lidocaine toxicity. Third, epinephrine is often added to the fluid to constrict blood vessels, helping control blood loss and slowing down the absorption of the local. The fluid removed during liposuction, including fat and some of the tumescent fluid, is labeled the aspirate. Now, the anticipated volume of the aspirate depends on the location and number of body regions that are being targeted. This amount could be as small as 20 cc's or so, such as from underneath the chin, or as large as several liters from the body. Aspiration of greater than 5 liters is labeled large volume liposuction. Your surgeon will have their own protocol regarding the maximum amount of aspirate at one setting, often on a case-by-case -case basis. But 
If a large volume procedure is performed, the patient may be monitored overnight for fluid management since hypovolemia, meaning low volume in the bloodstream, could be detrimental and opposite fluid overload could lead to pulmonary edema. A variation of the tumescent method is called the superwet technique. It refers to rapid infiltration of a smaller volume but similar composition of fluid and a close to one-to-one -one ratio of fluid infiltration to fat removed. As for the suctioning itself, sometimes a power-assisted or PAL machine, which vibrates the cannula to help it pass through stubborn tissues more easily, may be utilized. And in some areas of the body, surgeons may employ a technique called safe lipo. They would use an exploded or enlarged tip on the suction cannula to dilate the surrounding tissues and remaining fat, helping to even out the tissues and redistribute some loose fat in the region, almost like internal fat crafting. The goal is to try to leave a smoother and less lumpy future contour. These days, there are multiple technological additions to standard liposuction available to the surgeon, and what most seem to have in common is a thermal energy component. This can serve to liquefy the fat to some degree, making it easier to pass the cannula and suction the fat, all while hopefully reducing trauma to nerves and blood vessels. Plus, there may be an internal coagulation effect to decrease bleeding. The overall length of postoperative swelling time might be lessened as well. Another reported benefit of such thermal energy is found to be contracture of the local tissues in nearby dermis, thus tightening the contour. This can be great for overlying skin that has lost some elasticity. However, the total amount of potential tightening is still limited. These thermal options include laser liposuction, such as with Smart Lipo, Slim Lipo, and others, and ultrasound-assisted liposuction, or UAL for short, such as with VASER, starting with a V. And still there are additional modalities available, which use radiofrequency and gas plasma to produce tissue tightening, such as Renuvion. Yet it's important to realize that careful technique has to be utilized with all of these thermal energy-producing devices to avoid burns and other injury to the tissues. As we move on to what's important to determine during a consultation for liposuction, the main concern that comes to mind is who's a candidate. There are a couple of pearls of knowledge to retain here. The first is that the tighter the skin over the area to be suctioned, generally the better the outcome. What I mean is that if the skin in the region to be suctioned has started to lose elasticity, whether from age or other reasons, then the removal of some of the fat in this region will not necessarily result in the skin shrinking back up. In fact, it may seem looser or have a sagging appearance in the worst case scenario. And as you just heard in the previous section, there are modality additions available to standard liposuction which can try to address tightening of the overlying skin, but there is an upper limit to how much improvement can be realized, so expectations should be tempered. If there's just too much loose skin to begin with, Liposuction alone will not be the answer to achieving the patient's goal of a smoother contour. And in this situation, some skin resection, such as with a lift or a tuck, may be indicated. Secondly, as I alluded to earlier, there is a practical cap on how much fat can be reduced and where it can be removed from, so it's crucial during the consultation to ensure that the patient's goals are realistic. As an example, someone who is very overweight or clearly has a protuberant abdomen from a lot of intra-abdominal fat is not going to see as much contour improvement, since we can only suction the fat that is external to the abdominal musculature. 
The third helpful point to be aware of during consultation is that liposuction has a limited ability to improve the appearance of cellulite, and in some cases it could even make it seem worse. But in order for that to be clear, let's go over what cellulite really is and what contributes to its formation. Cellulite, sometimes colloquially referred to by patients as hail damage or cottage cheese, is that unpleasant, dimpled appearance that certain body parts can develop. It's most commonly seen in the thigh and buttock region, but occasionally in other regions as well. It's caused by the natural tethering of the skin to that fibrous tissue layer of fascia, and this tethering is created by stringy connections between the skin and the fascia. These connections are called septae, which is plural for septum. Why are the septae there, you might ask, if they can cause problems? Well, the function of these septae is to keep the skin somewhat anchored to the underlying muscle and other tissues. Without these attachments, anytime you sat on a chair, for example, you might slide all around inside your skin. An analogy I like to use is that of a mattress cushion. If you can, picture a cushy structure with overlying fabric and multiple points of tufting where the buttons are. Translated to the body, the cushion fluffy foam would be fat, the overlying fabric would be skin, and the tufted indentations would designate the underlying fibrous septae. Therefore, the appearance of cellulite occurs when there is some excess fat in the area, and often the skin has lost some elasticity, so it allows bulging. But the septae do not stretch like the skin, so they create tether points. Liposuction may improve cellulite by reducing some of the bulging fat, but remember that the overlying skin has lost some elasticity, so it can sag or settle, without as much fat still there to hold it up and fill it out. And it's the sagging skin that could potentially make the area look worse. There have been some techniques developed to try to reduce the puckering from cellulite, such as with subcision or injection of an enzyme, to help release the septae under the skin. But results are mixed. So, to sum up, the best candidates for liposuction are, number one, patients who have skin with good turgor or tightness, and number two, are not too far from their ideal weight, yet have excess fat in spot problem areas, and number three, without much cellulite appearance. Of course, that does not mean that people who fit these criteria exactly are the only liposuction candidates. It's a relative scale, and liposuction can still serve a variety of people. Lastly, regarding consultations, this is a good time to screen for patients who have serious health issues or a history of bleeding problems, any of which might make them a poorer candidate for this procedure. The ultimate judgment of the surgeon, sometimes after communication with the patient's primary care physician, is key here. Next, let's talk about aftercare. The patients will usually go home the same day in a compression garment designed to minimize swelling and bleeding and to help maintain the improved contour. The garments are typically only removed for short periods of time and may be used for as long as a couple of weeks to a couple of months per the surgeon's protocol for specific body areas. After surgery, patients should be prepared for a lot of drainage. Remember that tumescent fluid we talked about being injected prior to suctioning? Well, the body reabsorbs some of it, and a portion may get suctioned out with the procedure, but the rest will evacuate through the easiest means, which is often through the sutured incisions. Preparing patients for this is very helpful and will save some frantic phone calls later on. 
bruising can be common, and although there are some methods to speed up its resolution, patients should be aware it can be potentially lasting two to three weeks, more in some cases, and perhaps less if thermal modalities are utilized with the suctioning. With bruising, also known as ecchymosis, the discoloration can follow gravity. So be prepared, for example, for a patient to wonder why there is bruising around their knees when they only had their upper thighs suctioned. Any non-absorbable sutures would be removed after several days to a week or so, then scar care per the surgeon's routine can be started. Activities would be restricted for a variable time depending upon the treated body area and the aggressiveness of the surgery. Doing too much too soon can result in fluid collections forming from internal friction of tissues rubbing against each other before they've had a chance to fully heal. Some additional bleeding could be stirred up by strenuous activity too. Swelling lingers for quite some time in these patients and it can fluctuate throughout the day. For example, the treated area may seem fine in the morning, but then after the patient is upright for a while or a little more active, they may feel puffy again. Some surgeons will prescribe regular lymphatic massage to help, but in fact, it can be three to six months before final contour results can truly be appreciated. And that would be an ideal time for follow-up photos. Finally, what do patients expect and what could go wrong? Most patients have garnered certain expectations from the media and sometimes from acquaintances, but they may not have the right information. So let's go over some common patient questions and concerns, and we'll cover possible complications as well. Before surgery, patients may ask how much weight they are going to lose with liposuction or how many pant sizes or dress sizes they will go down. Here again is the ideal opportunity to make sure they have a proper understanding of why liposuction is done and what it can realistically accomplish. To reiterate, it is not a weight loss procedure, so the concept of how many pounds they are going to lose should be taken off the table. Results should be evaluated by contour changes rather than weight loss. And in fact, there are some cases where a patient may actually see a temporary weight gain right after surgery due to IV fluids, retained tumescent fluid, and postoperative swelling. As for change in clothing sizes, this is something that cannot be accurately predicted or promised. It is safer to tell patients that they will feel more comfortable in their clothing, and if they drop a size or two, well, that's icing on the cake. Patients also ask about longevity. They want to know how long results will last and whether they will regain fat preferentially in the areas that have been suctioned. So we can break this down into two concepts, what happens at the level of the fat layer in question and what happens at the skin level. In terms of fat, the remaining volume or amount of fat left in the suction area should stay relatively stable if the patient does not gain or lose overall weight in the future. Now, as you can imagine, it's pretty difficult to maintain the same weight for years and years, though some people manage to accomplish it. For everyone else, any significant weight fluctuation can impact the suctioned area, but not necessarily out of proportion with the rest of the body. The reason is because liposuction removes fat cells, and it's actually the size of our fat cells which increase when we gain weight, meaning they fill with more lipid, rather than the number of fat cells that increases. Those suctioned cells are gone for good. Therefore, if a person gains weight after liposuction, they will gain it everywhere, including the suctioned area, but not preferentially there. However, 
It's important to realize that the more weight is increased, the more obvious it may be that there can be more fat cells remaining in some areas as compared to adjacent areas, and this could produce an irregular contour that could become lumpy looking in the worst case. All the more motivation to try to maintain a stable weight after liposuction. As I mentioned, the other component of the longevity of results has to do with the overlying skin. If elasticity reduces over time, particularly with age, then the skin may settle or sag with time and allow some irregular contours to show through. The bottom line is that patients should be aware that there are some things they can do to maintain outcome, such as hold weight steady, but other factors will be out of their control. Solutions to any shift in results could include revision liposuction or even skin tightening through some means if contour is problematic enough. Moving on, let's discuss possible complications. Some are more serious than others, but fortunately those are rare. One of the most common occurrences after liposuction can be something called a seroma, which is essentially a persistent fluid collection. It can be annoying for the patient or even uncomfortable due to pressure, and could also lead to future stretched out skin in the region. For these reasons, aspiration, meaning removal with a needle and syringe, is often undertaken in the office and may need to be repeated regularly until the problem resolves. A potential more serious complication is bleeding or hematoma formation. The compression garment helps reduce this risk, but it does not eliminate it. If a patient calls in complaining of increasing bruising and swelling in an area with increasing bloody drainage, they may need to be evaluated by someone urgently. Infection of the suctioned area is pretty uncommon, but could occur. As you would expect, the patient will present with increasing redness and possible purulent drainage. This would also require expedient attention. Next, there may be some numbness in the regions that were suctioned. The cutaneous nerves might have been disturbed by the cannula or by temporary stretch of the tissues. Fortunately, this often resolves, though it can take a few weeks to a couple of months in some cases. It's quite unusual for it to be permanent, but this is, of course, a possibility. Later, once most of the swelling has dissipated, there may be some problematic contour irregularities noticed if the suctioning was somewhat uneven or if some internal scar tissue has started to form. Though great care is taken in the technique of liposuction, like many things in surgery, it is not an exact science. If a few more fat cells were removed from one area as compared to an adjacent area, a contour irregularity could develop. Massage can sometimes be helpful, but if the problem is persistently noticeable, a future revision may need to be considered. External scar can be problematic in some patients as well. Similarly, if it does not improve with non-surgical techniques, a scar revision could be in order. While rare, there can be some more serious complications, which could even be life-threatening and are important to know about. These include four entities in particular. The first is local anesthetic toxicity, such as from lidocaine or bupivacaine, which I mentioned earlier in this episode. This can be seen up to the first 24 hours or so. A variety of symptoms could occur, such as ringing in the ears, a metallic taste in the mouth, dizziness, and may culminate in seizures or cardiac arrest. Instituting oxygen and starting a lipid rescue using IV intralipid can be life-saving. The second is fat embolism, and this can occur when one or more loose particles of fat have entered the bloodstream through a vein which may have been inadvertently damaged by a cannula or by stretch of the tissues. This has a high risk of fatality 
keeping the patient's intravascular volume stable with avoidance of hypovolemia, as well as the use of smaller diameter cannulas while taking care where they are oriented, can help minimize risk. Thirdly, a deep venous thrombosis could occur and lead to a pulmonary thromboembolism, which may not present symptomatically for a few days to a few weeks after the procedure. Many surgeons will institute perioperative prophylaxis to help prevent this based on a standardized score determination of risk. For any embolus situations, among other symptoms, the patient may present with shortness of breath or calf pain in the case of a DVT or deep venous thrombosis. These complaints need to be taken very seriously, and the patient will need urgent evaluation, often with a radiological study, to screen for these worrisome events. Fourth, for liposuction involving areas near the abdomen or chest, there can be an internal puncture of the abdominal or chest cavity. Patients may present with abdominal pain or shortness of breath, among other complaints, and urgent evaluation is crucial. Careful attention to the angle of the cannula during liposuction, maintaining it in a tangential direction to the abdomen, is instrumental in helping to avoid this complication. Again, these serious events are unusual, but awareness and attention to any of these possibilities on the part of both the surgeon and the staff are what can bring the best care to the patient. Overall, liposuction is a wonderful and very useful procedure, which has withstood the test of time, and techniques continue to improve yearly. What it can accomplish for patients is quite impressive. It's no wonder that it remains one of the most popular procedures today. When performed with careful technique and for the right candidates, it can be highly successful and rewarding, not only for the patient, but also the surgeon and staff as well. That concludes this episode of Aesthetic Staff Bootcamp Podcast, available to you exclusively through the Aesthetic Society. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and found it both enlightening and useful. Don't forget to explore the other informative episodes as well. Special thanks to Elastin for sponsorship of this series. For patients considering surgical procedures, pain and downtime are two of the biggest concerns. That's why Elastin Skincare developed a revolutionary new product specifically designed to help minimize discomfort, accelerate the recovery process by reducing the appearance of bruising and swelling, and improve the overall patient experience. While Elastin is widely recognized for its groundbreaking periprocedural skincare technology, Reform and Repair Complex with Trihex Technology is the company's first innovation in the surgical space, and top plastic surgeons are already talking about it. Dr. Lori A. Cassis of the University of Chicago Medicine says, the acceleration in the healing process for the patient and the improved patient experience is undeniable. Learn more about Reform and Repair and Elastin's other procedure pairing and daily skincare at www.elastin.com reform. That's A-L-A-S-T-I-N dot com slash reform.